Welcome to the Using the Whole Whale podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies making a difference in the social impact world. This podcast is a proud production of Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. Thank you for joining us. Now, let's go learn something. This week on the nonprofit newsfeed, we've got some new news, but also I'm just proud because hopefully we sound better. We are trying out some new software to make the quality of this podcast better because frankly, we believe in iteratively getting marginally better, fewer mistakes, doing our best every week. So hopefully we we sound a bit better as we bring you uh, news that Sometimes it's uplifting. I feel like we've been on some weird trends recently, Nick. Uh, I am excited, though, because there was a big announcement about blood donations and some shifts coming. Yes, George, I'll take us to our top story. And that is, as you said, the news that the FDA has announced that they are going to ease restrictions on gay men and blood donation eligibility. So this past Friday, the FDA proposed the new new policy with revisions that demonstrate a shift toward more inclusive regulations surrounding blood donations for members of the LGBTQ plus community and those of other sexual orientations. This is reported by CNBC and many other outlets. In 2015, the lifetime ban on gay men from donating blood was eased somewhat to allow those who abstain from sex from one year to donate blood, but Friday's announcement propose easing those restrictions even further. Um, The long-time restrictive blood donation rules, again, which it's announced have been eased a bit, um, have long been criticized as discriminatory by organizations like the Human Rights Campaign and and other organizations which say this new announcement is a step in the right direction, but there's still a way to go. The new rules would allow monogamous, gay, and bisexual men to donate blood, while folks engaging with insects with new or multiple partners must wait three months. Pretty crazy. This is how long it took to get here. Um, Still a ways to go. But we know that uh, blood donation and community blood drives touches uh, on a lot of similar themes and organizations, particularly related to community health um, and nonprofits that work in community health. So we wanted to bring this story to the forefront. Yeah, like you said, it, it's a quick check. It's 2023, and it's amazing if you are looking at how, frankly, homophobic originally that this really, uh, the genesis of this concern dates back to the AIDS epidemic and the misunderstandings inherent there. So in addition, it's great because, you know, uh, blood shortages, blood donations being needed uh, nationally, regionally, and especially when we come in and out of uh, moments of uh, disaster and crisis. So uh, it is um, it also helping, I think, in the national blood shortages that we episodically see. So good news. Absolutely. This is good news all around. Uh, we hope that there's additional progress is, is made on this issue, but uh, a welcome announcement for sure. 
All right, I can take us into our next story. And this is kind of a, a funky source for us. This one comes from state.gov, courtesy of the U.S. Department of State. Uh, and this was a press release celebrating a program that has a lot of impl implications regarding global efforts to combat HIV AIDS. So on January 28th was the 20th anniversary of the U.S. President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, which is commonly known as PEPFAR, uh, that was started under the Bush administration. So PEPFAR is largely considered to be one of the most successful international health intervention programs within the international development space um, to be implemented not just by the U.S., but by anyone, anywhere. Uh, the, the 20 years of the program has, has really helped, a lot of analysts say, combat HIV AIDS, um, particularly in Africa and on the African continent. Um, two decades later, PEPFAR has supported nearly 65 million people um, with HIV treatment and testing services and provides more than 20 million men, women, and children with life-saving antiretroviral treatment, or ART. And... Uh, to build on the program's enduring legacy, the, the State Department and PEPFAR are attempting to reinvigorate the U.S. global response to end the HIV-AIDS pandemic by 2030. And I will say, when you look at the, the origins of this, um, it was definitely came of a different time, right? Bush administration. Um, there was actually some like abstinence-only education that was kind of controversial that was in there that eventually got... Uh, legally excluded permanently, um, but has done a tremendous amount and was really in a whole of government effort. It was the State Department. It was the Department of Commerce. It was the Department of Defense. It was Peace Corps volunteers on the ground. It was nonprofit and NGO implementing partners. It was a really, really collaborative kind of interdisciplinary uh, project here, of course, as well facilitated by USAID. So just one of a, in a world of bad news. Sometimes it feels like a good news story worth celebrating that we actually are, of course, with lots of collaboration, uh, able to tackle big issues. And I think that this is one example of a time that the world has tackled a big issue and made a difference. Really impressive also seeing that, you know, they're trying to set a target of ending the HIV AIDS pandemic as a public health threat by 2030. And, you know, as a reminder, I think the word pandemic, the word pandemic has a deeper meaning, I think, for all of us now. And considering that this, I think, officially came on the scenes in 1981, sort of gives you the idea of how how long we may be in a, a global uh a global focus now, seeing that they support nearly 65 million folks uh, across the world with HIV AIDS uh, as part of this program, uh, which is very impressive with HIV treatment and testing services. Absolutely. Phenomenal program, and we hope to see it achieve even more in the coming years. All right, I'll take us into our next story. And if you are fans of The Daily from the New York Times, of course, the eponymous uh, podcast, uh, this is a story for you. I will say, as heard first on nonprofitnewsfeed.com and the nonprofit newsfeed, 
uh, podcast feed, um, but the dailies finally caught up to us and issued a podcast episode of their own called How Nonprofit Hospitals Put Profits Over Patients. Uh, the episode is hosted by Sabrina Tavernisi and talks about nonprofit hospitals, which make up half of hospitals in the United States, many of which were founded to help the poor really kind of emphasize how these hospitals have deviated from their public good missions and values, essentially operate like for-profit businesses, charging absurd rates and really failing some of the communities and poorer patients that they serve. So really worth a listen times. Most of what we we talked about on this podcast was was from journalists at the New York Times, and we love them. They've been really pulling the thread on this uh, in a great way. Um, but uh, cool to listen um, to this story that really, really highlights this complicated issue um, and just kind of how broad and how important an, an issue this is and needs to be talked about more. Like this needs to be reformed. I'll, I'll say this is not complicated, actually. If you have an operating 501c3 for public benefit hospital, there is a requirement that for the folks that fall below a certain uh, poverty threshold, you cover their services. You don't harass them for, for payment. You don't harass them for payment at the bedside. Some of these stories are, are really uh, are really depressing. And there, you know, I think they were a little light on it, but uh, as causations, Providence, uh, which had a hospital system uh, that they said recently merged with a nonprofit hospital, they hired McKenzie and Company. So McKenzie and Company, the consulting firm, McKenzie and Company then came up with the plan to get patients to fork over money. I'm quoting here, and they called it Rev Up, as in revenue up. Nonprofit focused consulting agency. Uh, I think there is an interesting amount of attention that could be paid to who consults in these moments and saying, is it a honest, correct thing to advise a nonprofit to maximize revenue in the face of mission? And they got one line. And, you know, so the story moved on. I found that interesting. Um, I found that very interesting. And in terms of maximizing revenue, no. We maximize impact. Consultants that work in the industry should remember that, uh, that there is a double bottom line. And honestly, I, I hope more ink is spent on practices that promote predatory behavior toward income-constrained uh, income communities. Uh, it frustrates me. Um, it, it is frustrating uh, because there's, you know, not just one actor here. There, there are a bunch of folks um, trying to be really clever um, at the expense uh, of a community. So we've had debt uh, on the podcast to speak about how they approach um, large medical debt. If this, I'll say, if this frustrates you, go go to that organization and look at the fact that you could turn $1 into $100 of uh, medical debt relief for individuals struggling under this system. So channel the rage, write a check. Maybe I'll go pause and go do that right now. Yeah, George, I feel your rage as well. And this dovetails with the other thread we've been following, which was the nursing strike in New York City. 
nurses at nonprofit hospitals advocating for, yes, better pay, but <laughs> primarily advocating for more staff to do their jobs well, right? And hospitals are so laser focused on profit and margins that nurses who say that they feel that they are dangerously understaffed are being ignored. Um, and those those pro- those strikes worked and resolved. They were able to n- negotiate. It affects real people. It affects real communities. And yeah, hopefully uh, it, it's good to see reporting from the Times keep the ball moving on this. But that's that's one ball going up against a really, really steep incline, the American hospital industrial complex, as you were. So we'll see what happens. Well, another point here, I, I want to be fair that I don't mean that like all nonprofits should not have a profit or not be able to pay their staff enough or not have income generating activities. By all means, I will jump to the front of the line and champion that. Absolutely do that. But before you sort of bring out the 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 world's smallest violin in this moment, right? And and cry for this organization. Like they had twenty seven billion. Providence had twenty in in revenue. You know, this is not uh, this is not a small organization. And you know, they're not paying tax when when you're a nonprofit. So. Um, Mind you, a, I'd say in, in this in this level of conversation for nonprofit hospitals, I'm finding a hard um, a hard case to to find the other side. I'm with you, George. Hopefully, we have good news to report in the near future. But a big problem that's going to take a big solution over a long time. But you know, what is a solution that already exists that can really help people very directly is the SNAP program. So our next story comes from Gothamist. And this article is titled, uh, SNAP food stamp payments are about to get smaller and New Jersey lawmakers want to fund the difference. So SNAP is the uh, supplemental nutrition assistance program run by the federal government aka food stamps, and it helps people buy food at supermarkets. And um, it was increased during the pandemic um, as part of pandemic funds that really helped people. It also helped uh, mitigate some of the challenges due to rising food costs, but it's about to expire, except lawmakers in New Jersey um, are looking to potentially extend, actually use state funds to extend the increased benefits from the pandemic era SNAP increases, which I think is really innovative and really clever problem and public policy um, to extend programs like this. And I think we wanted to bring this to your attention because some of these programs, the the SNAP program, um, like this is public policy that works. And we love talking about public-private partnerships on nonprofits and communities and um, food assistance is an all-hands-on effort problem that needs an all-hands-on-deck approach. And uh, it's, yeah, I I think an important story, um, because I know a lot of nonprofits touch on this, but uh, wanted to highlight it here. Uh, George, what what are your thoughts around this? 
Yeah, I think food stamp programs are up there for most efficacious in terms of helping an audience because that <laughs> the direct connect between, hey, here's money for food, essentially uh, vital, you know, vital nutrients for families that are, you know, struggling to to make ends meet. And by the way, uh, while the pandemic may be winding down, the inflation is winding up, right? The general cost of living has increased, which is a holdover, hangover, pandemic effect of what we did to the economy to, you know, bridge that gap. And I think, you know, we're going to be paying attention to stories like these where the, I believe, current timeline is sometime in the next six months where the Biden administration will be making an announcement that we are, you know, officially out of the emergency phase of the pandemic may give the excuse of cutting some programs. Maybe some should be cut, but I think others that are serving uh, uh, lower income communi communities should be, uh, should be preserved. Uh, especially in the time of inflation. So I worry a little bit about sort of taking the, uh, you know, the emergency moniker off of uh, some of the assistance programs and giving the excuse to, to cut back where maybe we shouldn't uh, and support uh, programs like uh, food stamp assistance. Um, in my college days, I was in Philly and I actually worked with uh, a group that registered people for food stamps and, you know, would walk through line item. Like I would sit there and I was in... Um, you know, approaching folks being like, hey, would you want to apply for food stamps? And we would go through their budgets. And, you know, it was uh, it was shocking. Like, it, this is not something that is being, you know, handed out on the street. You have to go through a pretty rigorous application process, actually, in, you know, in that day at the very least. And also it's very, uh, very real when you're looking at, at, you know, raw numbers of like, you know, you make this much and food costs that much and rent costs that much. Like, there's, you know, there's very, very thin margins that folks are who apply for food stamps uh, living on. And so these numbers seem small. Oh, we're reducing it from $95 down to 50. Like those are, uh, that, I mean, that's the difference of a number of meals right there. Um, so I'm a, I'm a fan of food stamp programs uh, because I, I believe it supplements in a supportive way. Yeah, George, I absolutely agree with you. Uh, we talked about as well, like apps that help people access um, various benefits related to, to food. Um, one well taken that it's a very real, very human problem and a very effective policy intervention. Um, so we'll continue to follow that, that program and see what happens out of New Jersey. Um, George, how about a feel good story? Ooh, what do we got? All right. This one comes from, okay, I'm going to say this wrong, <laughs> the mountaintimes.com that uh, <laughs> inexplicably has watagademocrat.com in its domain name. <laughs> domain name. Anyhow, uh, it is an article about the annual high county canine keg poll. Uh, has returned to the Appalachian Mountain Brewery for its 10th anniversary to raise money for the partners, exclamation point, canine nonprofit. The event was held uh, last Saturday. And I think this is awesome. Supporting dog rescue nonprofits like Partners Canines um, and their shelter, which has helped more than 10,000 dogs since 2007. And the model is that for every beer purchased, $1 will get donated to help dogs in need. And we love to see that. Um, 
never uh, a more noble reason um, to drink lots of beer on a Saturday afternoon. Yeah. Um, again, that's the 10th annual high country canine keg pull. I just wanted to say that actually. <laughs> what a great name. <laughs> it's perfect. Uh, but, you know, the organization did and has over 10,000 uh, canines. So this is uh, uh, good, good to support um, an, actual, an actual nonprofit doing actual work for uh, local shelters. Uh, Nick, I've got a question for you. Uh-huh. <laughs> I know you're excited. Uh, why did the nonprofit Million Tree Planting Project fail? Oh, I don't know. Uh, it was too shady. <laughs> too shady. <laughs> you know, because <laughs> you know the, the trees make um make shade. 